We are journeying through this book called Romans, which I am convinced is the most important book of the New Testament. And uh, we're run, running through it pretty fast. Um, so we're not giving it its due, in other words. I'm preaching to keep up with our discipleship groups, which are our more in-depth Bible studies that run throughout uh, the fall. And so today we're going to cover quite a bit of ground. But this is really, really important ground. Because I think as I was reflecting on the verses and the passages we're reading today, I think what it really all comes down to is how you know when you belong to God. In other words, how do you know when you're saved? And I get asked that question a lot. It's a pretty common question. And, you know, I've got to be ready to answer. And I think we all should be ready to answer because it's a question on the minds of a lot of skeptics, people that have one foot in, one foot out, and just kind of testing the waters a little bit. How do you know? Like how many church services do you go to before you're in? Or how much do you have to give? Or how involved do I need to get? Or how many prayers do I need to pray before I'm saved from my sin and my death and hell? Like, when does it kick in? You know, when did the benefits start? Like it's an insurance program or something. That's how we think of it. It really is. And, and people think of it that way because that's how we often present it to them with our, with our language. And so we need to be able to talk about how we know when we're saved. I think Paul really um, is writing in chapters 6, 7, and 8 about this very question. Because from the very start, Christians were getting this question wrong. And we continued to get it wrong in a cyclical kind of a way. It's a pretty, pretty important question, though. We shouldn't be getting this wrong. But I want to talk about some of the ways we, we get that wrong and the ways Paul tries to set us straight in Romans 6, 7, and 8. So um, we're going to jump right into it here. It's, um, it's in your study guides, and it's also going to be on the screen. But best of all, if you brought your own Bible or Bible app, you can follow along in chapter 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll skip ahead uh, a few verses as well, 11 through 14. So here we go. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In other translations, it says, heaven forbid, no way shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase. We are those who've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself as, uh, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are under, not the law, but you are under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. How do you know 
when you're saved. Oftentimes, I hear people suggest that they are saved because of the church they belong to. I have a friend who is also an electrician who comes to fix things at my house because I don't know how to fix things at my house. When Giovanna needs a real man around, she calls Jose. <laughs> it's a true story. Jose is a good man. He's a good Catholic. And every time I see him, I invite him to the story. Not because I think the story is a step up from the Catholic Church. But I, <clears throat> I want to invite him. I like him. And... <laughs> Uh, every time he politely declines. And he tells me that he's a Catholic and he goes to church and that he knows people. He has friends that, goes to, that go to churches like mine. And he says they seem less happy than he is because when people go to churches like mine, he says, y'all make them stop doing all the fun stuff. And he said, me, a Catholic, I drink the whiskey, Go to church, say sorry. <laughs> Go back to the whiskey. And that's his pattern. <laughs> so he parties, he repents, and then he parties again. And I think uh, as funny as that is, and I laughed as well when he said it, um, he meant it with all of his heart. And I think a lot of us live as though our relationship with God and our salvation in Christ are transactions. They are transactional by nature. If we do this, then this good thing will happen to us. If we do that, then that bad thing will happen to us. As though we're kind of in the, the driver's seat. There's, there's a couple of things wrong with that way of, of thinking. And the, the first thing that's wrong with, with that way of thinking really is, um, I guess one way that you know you're really touched by the grace of God to the point of like being saved is you notice in your own free will a change in your appetite. And when you've been touched by grace to the point of response, right, you want to pursue a different way of life. You don't want to go back to the way that you were. Those things are dead. It's not that you don't go back to them sometimes. Because those old habits and patterns can be really hard to break. So when you've been touched by grace, your appetites begin to change. Even if all your actions don't, your appetites do. Does that make sense? But the other thing that's wrong with that way of thinking that, you know, that way of thinking that basically says, hey, I like to sin. He likes to forgive. This is a win-win situation. The other thing that's wrong with that way of thinking is that your behavior has anything whatsoever to do with your salvation. You didn't behave your way into your salvation. And it's all grace, right? So the other side of that is you can't behave your way out of your salvation. It's not up to you. Now, you can renounce your faith. I'm not saying necessarily once saved, always saved like they say. You can say, I hate you, God, and walk away. People do that all the time. But you can't behave your way out of your salvation, right? So, because you didn't behave your way into it. It's not about your 
good behavior, but somehow we've gotten to this place in the world, in our life as Christians, where we think it is. We've basically boiled the depth and richness of the grace-centered gospel of Jesus that claims us all as sinners and walks us towards salvation. By his grace and not our behavior, we boil all of this beautiful thing down to just another religion that's about behavior modification. And it's all about me behaving a little bit better than before. And if I behave a little bit better than before, then God will love me a little bit more than before. And the better a boy I am, the more I get for Christmas, right? It's very easy to slip into that way of thinking about God and your relationship with him. We have uh, developed within Christianity and communicated to the outside world an understanding of our relationship to God as a contract and not a covenant. A contract is a transaction. And there is a major difference between a contract and a covenant. Some of you and us, I've done it too, we all live at times as though we're in a contract with God rather than a covenant with him. Listen, Covenant is a, is a mutually agreed upon, spiritual, eternal, unconditional pact between two willing parties that have a genuine concern and affection for each other, right? A contract is that little box you checked when you opened your Gmail account without reading the terms and conditions where you basically signed your whole life away. Every email, every correspondence, every Web browser search, it's all being compiled in a dossier with your name on it. 50 years from now, your robot and or Russian overlords is going to use it against you, right? So not to be a conspiracy theorist or anything, but that was the contract you agreed to when you checked that little box without reading. That's a contract. And there's some very important differences between a contract and a covenant. That's not the kind of thing God proposes in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come and live and die to have a contract with you. So I'll walk you through some of these differences. Basically, a contract is based on terms and conditions, right? A covenant is not based on terms and conditions. It's based on trust. Trust that you're aspiring for greater holiness. You're aspiring to be better. It's not dependent on you being better. It's based on trust that you're progressing, right? You're pursuing something higher. When a contract is violated when the terms of a contract are violated, it's rendered void and useless, right? So it's no good at that point. A covenant is not made void and useless when it is violated. You can see the rest of it. Basically what it boils down to is that a contract boils down to your performance and the other party's performance in the contract. And a covenant is based on grace, not your performance. You see the difference? So, if your performance is lacking, the person or entity with whom you are in a contract relationship can pursue damages against you because you didn't fulfill it. They can withdraw from the contract because it doesn't exist anymore. That is not how a covenant works. A covenant, by definition, is more like a bone that breaks and heals stronger than before. A covenant, once broken, is remade and restored through the power of grace and forgiveness. Because a covenant isn't about keeping all the rules to a T. A covenant is about two people who love each other, pursuing greater intimacy, greater holiness together. This is how I know. This is how I know 
This is what God intended with the gospel. It's because we have examples of covenant relationships in our lives today, and they are not based on performance. If they are, they fail. Examples. Marriage and church membership. Two very prescient examples for this room right now. Lots of married people. Lots of church members in this room right now. Marriage, not a contract. You got those friends of yours that are cohabitating. You tell them to get married, and they're like, it's just a piece of paper. No, it's not a contract. Let me tell you how I know. This weekend, I'll officiate what I think is my 250th wedding to officiate. That's a lot of weddings. I love weddings. I love being a part of weddings, even though every single wedding you and I have ever been to was based entirely on lies being told by two people. It is a bed of lies they sleep on. Like nobody who's ever gotten married went through their wedding without telling a bunch of lies because they all stand there right in front of me and God and everybody and say, I will love and cherish and honor you forever no matter what. No, you won't. Like one day, one day I'm just going to be like, no, you won't like in the middle of the wedding because it's a lie. It's a lie. If, if it's a contract, it's a lie. Because if it's a contract, the marriage is null and void before the wedding's even over. You know, there's a session of photos after the wedding. Bride and groom always fighting. They're not honoring each other in the wedding photo session. Like it's over at that point. You broke your, you broke your terms of the contract. It's done. Except for the fact that a, a marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. And the vows we share to love and honor and cherish each other in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, they are not terms and conditions of a contract. They are words of covenant. And when broken, as they invariably will be broken, it is not reason to part ways, but it's reason to grow closer together again by the grace of God, stronger than before. Because the two of you, by his grace, trust one another in that covenant enough to believe that you're both aspiring toward greater holiness. Even though sin enters in, even though we fall short, right? So Giovanna stood there 19 plus years ago and lied through her teeth when she said she would love and honor me in sickness and in health. She has not loved me in every sickness. She's tried, but I make it very difficult on her. (laughs) (laughs) I am the most pathetic and worst patient. Like if I have a cold, you would think it's malaria or something. It's just the worst. And I'm very unlovable. And sometimes she's thrown up her hands and left me just to my own devices a little bit. And, and, And is that a breach of contract? No, because we're not in a contractual relationship. We're in a covenant relationship. We're aspiring toward greater holiness together in spite of our slip-ups and our sins, right? That's how covenant works. That's what church membership is too. When you join this church, you don't sign a membership contract. If you did, things would get very awkward because we would come and audit your performance. <laughs> After you promise to be present in worship anytime you're in town and not sick. Okay, well, let's send someone to your door on a Sunday morning. 
see where Mrs. Jones is today. You know, like, like if you promise to connect in a community uh, group, a chapter or a discipleship group, you promise to serve the world through Church Under the Bridge or Go Ministries or Jubilee, you promise to give generously uh, to the church's ministries when you sign your marriage, your, your uh, membership covenant. We don't, we don't audit this stuff. I don't need to see your books at the end of the year, you know. If you don't sign and, 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 and give us one of these play your part 2019 cards, your planned giving for 2019, it's not like we revoke your membership or anything. You don't get suspended from your membership at the story if you don't follow through on what you said you would. Um, you, don't, you don't get suspended, like, you don't lose your membership, right? I mean, my heart breaks in a thousand pieces, and uh, an angel doesn't get her wings, you know. My puppy dies. But you're still a member here, you know what I mean? Like, because this is not a contract we're in together, but a covenant. A covenant is not based on your performance, but it is based on grace and grace alone. And we trust that you are pursuing greater depth and intimacy with God and this community. And so some of us uh, grew up, if you grew up in church, I almost guarantee you that you grew up thinking that your relationship to God was a contract and not a covenant. And if that's what you grew up with, then one of two things happened, maybe both, but definitely one of two things happened. You developed the sense that God's love for you is conditional based on your behavior. And these are the people that I run into today. And I say, hey, uh, so-and-so comes to church, and uh, I know y'all are friends. You should come with them. And they'll say, oh, if I walk through those doors, pastor, I think the roof would fall in. You know, like, like because they think they've lived such a bad life that they don't belong with God. Because they were raised, at some point they got the impression that their relationship to God is a contract. And they failed. They failed God. And so he doesn't love them. Or want them. Now, the even more heinous thing that can happen for some of us, I think this is even more common in this room, probably, is that we develop a sense of love for God that is conditional based on His performance. So, the first thing is, you know, we think God's love for us is based on our performance. But the second thing is worse, which is we think our love for God should be based on His performance. And if, if he really loved us, then he would give us certain things and take care of us a certain way, shield us from certain storms and, and keep us from certain suffering and answer our prayers and heal the sick people that we wanted to heal, everybody else, whatever. But the people we wanted to heal, like de deliver for me, you know, and, and we, we create uh, a sense about God that looks a little bit more like Santa Claus than sovereign. You know, like uh, we treat God a little bit more like a sugar daddy than a good father, right? Because you, you just look at the person next to you and say, hey, look at him right now, hey. God's not your sugar daddy. Say it with all your heart. God's not your sugar daddy. God is a good father, not your sugar daddy. Like, if life is good for a while, it doesn't mean he loves you more than when life is bad. That's not how it works. This is a covenant deal, not a contract, not based on your performance or his. It's not I love you if. It's I love you, period. So there are no terms and conditions. There's no contract. I think, 
I think this mentality that we're talking about today, which is so prevalent, all of us, regardless of age or religious background, it is so prevalent now, and it was then too, I think Paul wrote to address this infection of contractual thinking in the church. And he, he wrote to, to basically break down this concept that, that when you're good, God is good to you. And, and if, you're, if God's not being good to you, then you're not being good or maybe God's not good. I think that's why he said uh, to the people um, who were Christians in the first century that in verse uh, 14, sin will no longer be your master because God is your master now. And that means the sins that used to bind you, the things you used to live for, are no longer the Lord of your life. And you're living in love with this God who saved you. Now, y'all, he doesn't say that if you're living in love with this God who saved you, and if you're saved, then you'll stop sinning. That is not a way that you know if you're saved. Please don't believe that. Because if that was the truth, none of us could stand. We're just a bunch of sinners here. When people have a contractual understanding of God and church membership, for example, uh, we get very disappointed with the church because we think the church people should be nicer than everyone else. Because it's a contract, so these people must really get it. You know, like, and then you join a church and you're like, these people are just like everybody else. And then you write me an angry email and, and uh, I'm like, I'm, I kind of agree with those people that were mean to you. You know, like, because I'm a sinner too. You know, like, we're, we're nothing. We're no one. We're not de deserving of this grace we found. We're, we're just blessed by this grace, right? All, the only difference is we know we're sinners in need of grace. And so um, we're, we're, we're going to continue to sin even if uh, it's not the Lord of our life. All right. In fact, in, in, uh, in chapter 7, which I'm not going to read out loud, but y'all can on your own time or you will with your uh, discipleship groups, chapter 7 is deep. It's intense. Paul's like, look, I'm saved and I sin. And he says, all the things I know I should be doing, I can't bring myself to do some days. And then all the things that I don't want to do, that's all I ever do. And then Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, who wrote half the books in the New Testament, said, what a wretch that I am. What a wretch that I am. <clears throat> he says that sin continues to badger him. But even so, we are saved by the grace of Jesus who makes <clears throat> the sin, takes the sin off the throne of our lives. So he says, that part of you that was addicted to sin and needed sin, whatever it was that used to control your life, that part of you died. And this is a little dark. We never do this anymore, but baptism used to be about death. It used to be a celebration of death. Can you imagine doing an infant baptism today and be like, die? You know, like that's weird. Um, baptism used to be about death. They used to, they had in the first century, they had these mikvahs that they dug into the ground with steps that went down inside of them. And, and um, you would uh, put on a robe. You'd have a robe and nothing else on. And you would go into the mikvah and your descent into the mikvah was to symbolize your descent into death with Jesus. 
So as Jesus died on the cross, he took part of you with him, the part that used to enslave you as your master. And that part of you is put to death. And then you're held under the water to symbolize going into the grave. And then you come up out of the water. You would take your robe off and emerge out of the mikvah, baptized as naked as the day you were born. (laughs) Because it was your birthday suit. It was your rebirth. We don't do this anymore. Do y'all want to? Y'all want to redo it? Me neither. Trust me. Me neither. So... <laughs> so we don't do this anymore, but, but I think what happens is the symbolism of death is lost on us then. That when you're baptized into Christ, when he becomes the master of your life, the other masters that ruled you before are put to death. You'll continue to slip into those old habits and ruts and patterns, but they don't rule you anymore. You'll want them less. Your appetite will change because you'll want God more. And that's one way to know if you've truly been touched by the grace of God. And I think this whole idea is uh, we're bordering a little bit on, on just speaking exclusively to Christians and, and, and losing some of the people that are more skeptics in the room because we're speaking deep religious terms here. But listen, this all works fine until there is trouble. All this stuff about the Lord being the master of your life and all that, it's great as long as times are good. But when the storms come, when suffering comes, what then? And this is where you really learn whether your relationship to God is a contract or a covenant, when things go wrong. And so Paul wants to address this before um, getting off to another uh, topic that we'll dig into next week in chapter 9. This is chapter 8, verses 1 and then 31 through 39. And he wants us to think about what happens when Christians who believe in God suffer. So he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say in response to these things? So these things are, he's talking about is when Christians suffer. If there's no condemnation, then what is suffering? Because it feels like condemnation. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. That's important. It's God who justifies, not your good behavior that justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? If God can justify us, who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, we're not just sheep to be slaughtered. We don't just suffer for nothing. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors, not on our own, but through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Sometimes when your relationship with God is a contract instead of a covenant, it works fine when things are good. But when you don't get the job you wanted or the girl you wanted or the boy you wanted or the marriage you dreamed about, when you don't, when things don't go your way, when God doesn't heal the people you asked him to heal, when it feels like you're all alone in the world, at that point the contract falls apart and then what? Paul says, no, this is not the way that it works. We are in covenant with him. And when you're in covenant with God, suffering isn't something to avoid. Suffering makes you stronger. He works in it to bring about a character in you that you didn't know was there. So the Christian worldview of suffering, truly different than what you've heard, truly different than other secular worldviews of suffering and other religious worldviews of suffering. Others look at suffering as though it's karmic justice or as though people that suffer are getting punishment from the universe or God or somebody, or more often than not, we treat suffering as though it is to be avoided and as though it is meaningless. But in the Christian worldview, suffering might sometimes be random. What I mean by that, it's not necessarily a punishment for a certain sin. Suffering is often unfair. Sometimes things happen to you that you didn't maybe deserve. But suffering, in our worldview, always meaningful. So this doesn't mean, when you're in covenant with God, it doesn't mean that he will shelter you from every storm and protect you from every suffering. It just means that when you're in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your suffering, he always enters in and he always shows you the way out of it. Of this you can be sure because this is what it means to be in covenant with God. Suffering doesn't cancel out your relationship. Suffering makes it even stronger. He will always see you through. So I want to circle back to that initial question. We at the story try to speak directly to skeptics. And being, having been a skeptic for most of my life, even though I was a church rat my whole life, uh, I wasn't really personally affected by the grace of God until five and a half years ago. I'm not sure how I would have answered that question. How do you know if you're saved? (sighs) But I know now. For me. I'm just speaking from my experience. The difference in me after that experience as opposed to before isn't my behavior. It's not my morality or my thinking or my knowledge of Scripture or my church attendance. The difference my heart because now after acknowledging that God has been with me all along even before I acknowledged him even when I thought I was in control even when I kept falling on my face in my sin not wanting to relinquish power and control over my life He was there. And having seen his face and acknowledged it and bowed before it, like now I love God 
And that is the way I think you know if you're his, if you love him, not just if you obey him. Obedience is important, but it comes from love. Not just if you go to church. Going to church is important, but only if it starts with love. And I would just ask you, especially if you count yourselves among the skeptics or the cynics in this room, is there any part of you that sees how God has been there all along? Because I know the skeptical mind. I'm on to you. <laughs> I've been there, and I know what you're thinking. Well, lucky Eric, he had a personal experience with God. I've never had a personal experience with God. Have you not? Or are you just saying that as an excuse to stay in control of your life? Look, think back for a minute. Pretend like it's just you and me in the room. And think back to every moment of your life when you were cared for, even though you had nothing to offer. When you were given food to eat that you had nothing to do with providing. When you were giving something for free that you didn't deserve. Think about if you have children, the look in their eyes when they look up at you. Or if you are a child of a good parent, think about the look in that parent's eyes when they look down at you. Think about all the times you've been forgiven in spite of your bad decisions and your selfish thinking. Think about all the times you've been welcomed back into a family or a community or a friendship or a marriage with open arms, with no judgment. Think about every moment you've been swallowed up in the majesty of creation and that sense of awe swept over you and you couldn't explain it, but something was right with a capital R, right. Something was right and eternally right about the world around you, and it was beyond you, and you were just a small part of it receiving some beauty, some wonder and grace. Take all those moments together and ask yourself honestly if you've never seen the face of God. Are you ready to say today that all of those experiences taken on the whole, were random events, devoid of meaning, it was all just luck? Or did you see God in those moments, experience his love? I don't need you to believe every word the Bible says today. I don't need you to believe every word I say today. Heaven forbid. I don't need you to be at church every single Sunday like a good boy and girl, I don't, no one needs that. What I'm asking you is do you love the one who made you? Do your affections burn hot for him? Do you acknowledge how good he's been to you? How much you've received? How much honor he's shown you? often in spite of your sin. If there's any part of you today that is in love with God, I encourage you to spend a moment in prayer in just a minute as we prepare for communion and listen to that part of you that loves God and nurture that part of you that loves God and allow for that love 
to grow within you until the love of God is the biggest love you have. I think that's what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. I love him and his ways and his creation and his people and his patience and his forgiveness more than anything else. I love him. I pray that you do too. During communion, I'm going to be standing right here. Some water. There it is. Right there. Uh, I was like, hmm. Uh, some water. Um, if any part of you today is ready to step out of the excuses, to stop playing games, to stop putting God at the side of your life, treating it like a contract, and to put God where he belongs at the center, to proclaim your love for him, come see me right here. We'll say a prayer. I'll baptize you if you've never been baptized before. If you have, I'll just put some water on your head or your hand and say, remember your baptism and keep it holy by the life that you live. Take a step forward today. Let today be the day that things begin to change. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Uh, truly in you and your cross and your empty tomb, we see the face of God calling us out of our sin and by grace calling us into repentance and salvation. Thank you for forgiving us and loving us no matter how good we are for calling us sons and daughters. Lord, teach us to love you the way you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.